My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Well, church, at the close of the message, we're going to be singing a song that that Paxson and Allison wrote together. I always enjoy singing songs that our people write. A few uh, weeks ago, um, I was up in North Carolina visiting my son and daughter-in-law, and right before the message, uh, they had a song sung by uh, a husband and wife duo that they had written in the church, and uh, uh, apparently uh, they were uh, this whole summer, every week, they have a new song that's being written by somebody in the church, and then the, the worship director's helping them with the, the arrangement, and this being done. Well, as they began to sing, I leaned over to Catherine, and I said, hey, that's 1 John 2.28, which I thought was kind of neat that I knew that it was 1 John 2.28. Uh, <laughs> she gave me the stink eye about interrupting the song, but you know, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, and now little children, Let us abide in him so that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And there's a reason why I know that verse and why I memorized it, because on October 11th, 1983, I was a senior in high school, been running from God for quite some time, and he'd been chasing me. That song, your mercy, after me, after me, after me, that was my story, and on that night, I knew I had to either, I had to stop running, and I did. I stopped running, and uh, God made it clear on that night that I was no longer going to go to the University of South Florida. I was no longer going to be a pre-med major. I was going to do what I'm doing right now, and so I went back to my room, and I, I was a little disturbed. I was like, man, I'm leaving behind these career plans and everything else, and Am I just, you know, overreacting? And so I said, God, if this is really true, I want you to give me something tonight before I go to bed and go to sleep. And this is about 11 o'clock, and so I opened up my Bible, and I started in Galatians, and I began to read, and I didn't get anything. And Ephesians and Philippians, certainly Colossians. No, I finally, 1 John, and it was like the words of 1 John 2.28 jumped off the page were seared into my heart. I read them a couple of times, and they, I've never forgotten them. That's been a verse that has just guided me through the years in my life and ministry. Some of you know exactly what I mean. Some of you probably have a verse or a passage that is special to you. Maybe, uh, maybe it's a, light, a verse that you have claimed as a kind of a life verse, a verse. And so I want to just take a couple of minutes and ask, maybe a couple of you, if this is you, if you have a verse or a passage that is special to you that you've memorized, I want you to raise your hand and I want you to quote it for us as closely to perfect as you can. 
And if you don't mind even giving us a couple of sentences, not five minutes, a couple, three sentences, as to why it's special to you, I think it would be neat for the church to hear that. So would somebody go second? Okay. Yeah, great. Die. That's awesome. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. And it came at a time when you needed somebody to stand up for you. And that's great. Wonderful. Somebody else? Verse? Yes. Galatians 2.20, for it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The body that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. And it, it, I was in high school, and God gave me that verse, and I was no longer my own. Amen. And I was going to live for him, and uh, he was teaching our way. That's wonderful. Yeah. Awesome. Good. Somebody else? Maybe one more? Yes. Oh, wow. Man, what a great verse. Seven years of infertility, and that verse carried you through, and then you have two great children today. Praise the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? Well, you know, the last, the last couple of weeks, as we've been in this series on God's wisdom, and we've been primarily in the book of Proverbs, we were in Proverbs chapter 4, and we're looking at this idea of our heart, and our heart being the command center of our lives, that everything flows out of our heart. And that since our inner self is the source of our lives, we're to diligently guard and protect it. And we kind of have dwelt on that. And last week in, particularly, in particular, we got into the practical counsel and teased out uh, from verses 24 to 27 how it is that we guard our hearts. And there were three very distinct applications from those final verses, the first of which Solomon tells his children, ignore false direction. He knew that he had taught them the scriptures. He knew that the scriptures had been pounded and planted into them. But he also knew that there is this, this tendency for those in the world to take God's word and combine error or secular thought with it and present it and package it in a way that's very beautiful and put it before God's people. And so they, because it's got a little bit of truth and a lot of error, God's people buy into it and it can get them off track. It is crooked speech. It is bent truth. And he warns them about this repeatedly in the book of Proverbs. Solomon will remind his children of the importance of God's word to the possession and the understanding of God's wisdom. His repeated exhortations to his kids is a message to all of us that when we are devoted to God's word, the seeds of God's wisdom are being planted deep in our hearts into the command center of our lives. And that simple, basic concept provides the foundation for our takeaway truth this morning, that we will never walk in God's wisdom unless we know God's word. Now, now to say it maybe from a positive perspective, to have God's wisdom planted in your heart, we must know God's word. We saw this in chapter four. In chapter five, uh, Solomon begins to reiterate this truth as he speaks to his sons about the folly of immorality 
and adultery and sexual sin. He continues this in our text this morning as he exhorts them and reminds them that God's wisdom and God's word, they go hand in hand. Now, many of you, you have been walking with God for decades, and you know the reality of this truth, so much so that in your mind, God's wisdom and God's word are simply synonymous. They're just one and the same thing. But now everything that we talk about God's wisdom, you just think God's word. And those of, uh, but this morning, I think we still need to revisit this fundamental of our faith. First of all, not everybody here has been walking with God for decades. Not everybody here has learned the importance of God's word. But the great thing about this passage, as we look at why this simple truth is true and how it can be uh, experienced by any of us, the, the neat thing is it can be experienced regardless of how long we've been walking with God, regardless of how old we are in life. So let's begin in verse 20 first by noting the eternal importance of God's word. In verse 20, Solomon says, my son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck. And then as he begins chapter seven, he uses similar language again. He says, my son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, let's clear something up, church. It's when Solomon is saying, your father's commandments, my commandments, your mother's teachings, he is not referring to, you know, the life hacks that he passed on to his sons. Like, you know, make sure, sons, that you keep the axle of the chariot greased in this particular way, and this is the easiest way to remove the wheel, and or, you know, sons, if you want your couscous to be fluffy, listen to what your mom said and soak it ahead. You know, that he's not talking about the everyday little tips and tricks, the things that are accumulated that we pass down from, from family to family through the generations. And we know this because of the language of these verses. The language of these verses help us because it's the language of the Shema. The Shema is that passage in, or the Shema, depending upon how you pronounce it, or Shema, uh, if you're from the South, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this foundational passage in the Torah. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Solomon isn't referring to life hacks. When he says your father's commands and your mother's teachings, he's in, in, and writing them on the tablets of your heart, he's going right back to Shaman. In other words, he's saying, listen, your mother and I, we have taught you God's word. We have obeyed the Shema. We have helped you with this. And you know God's word. And, and here it's eternally important. And, and you understand even from this passage why it's important from the Shema. The scriptures 
reveal God. The Lord our God is one. I'm not like these polytheistic gods that you are encountering in the culture. I am Jehovah. I am the creator. I am the holy one. I am the God of all gods. There is no other God besides me. And then in that little passage, and it's such an important passage, the Shema is to the Old Covenant and to the Old Covenant believers, maybe by analogy, what the the Lord's Prayer is to the New Covenant and New Covenant believers. It's just that important because its central message reveals who God is and, and what He's about and how we're to respond to Him. And how are we to respond to Him? We are to take His Word and we are to write it on the tablets of our heart. We are to have it always before. Sadly, the nation of Israel and the, the Hebrews, they took this passage, which is filled with spiritual and metaphorical meaning, and they literalized it. And so, yes, they took the little things and the phylacteries and they pounded it onto the door and they made it into a religious ritual, not realizing that what God was interested in was seeing the, the, the word, his word, implanted deep in the command center of their life and their heart, so that it could provide its truth and its function to them. And, but what you see in that passage of which, from which Solomon is pulling from is how absolutely important the Scriptures are. Parents are to be devoted to doing everything in their power to bringing the truth of God's Word to their children, that all of us are constantly to keep it before us. In the New Testament, both Jesus and the apostles also speak to the eternal importance of God's word. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus answers Satan by saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that all scripture is inspired by God, that scripture is literally God-breathed. It's profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the people of God may be equipped and ready and complete, equipped for every good work. The apostle Peter in 1 Peter tells us that we are born again by the living, indwelling, abiding Word of God. And the Word of God is not like nature. The grass, it withers. The flower, it fades away. But the Word of God is and remains forever. It's eternally important. And so Solomon is telling his children, God is telling us through the Holy Spirit speaking Solomon, my Word is infinitely important. It reveals me to you. Plant it in your heart. Write it on the tablet of your heart. Make sure it's sitting in the seat of your command center. Now, why is this the case? Because there is a usefulness of God's word as we are growing and walking with God. From a, a spiritual perspective, I think this passage lays out several profound and important spiritual uses of God's word. First in verse 22, you see that God's word is intended to be the foundation of our worldview. That God's word provides a godly, truthful, accurate, sound foundation for life, a worldview. 
When you walk, he says to his sons, they, in other words, all that I have taught you from God's word, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. In other words, all of the the times that you're alive in life, God's word is there to superintend and lead and guide and protect you and help you. Solomon's saying that the word of God is supposed to be the basis for how we live and how we think and how we act because it provides right thinking, righteous living. And you know, if you think about the context of these verses, context couldn't be more relevant for us today than ever before. Because here the context of these, of these verses and these chapters, Solomon is talking to his sons about marriage and romance and genders, and sex, and sexual desires, and all that is involved in all of that. And I think that's just a little bit relevant to us today when we think about it. And so what Solomon is saying to his sons is, listen, guys, you're going to hear from the world all of these ideas. Your friends are going to say all kinds of things about sex and marriage. Your your sin nature is going to scream at you to live a particular way, to listen to the temptations that come your way from maybe the immoral person or the adulteress. The enemy himself is going to ensure that the lies are brought your way about marriage and romance and what it means to be a man or a woman and sons. Specifically, what God says about sex And marriage and gender is right. Not what your friends say or what the culture or your sin nature or the enemy says to you. Couldn't be more relevant, church. As we are being bombarded by messages that are contrary to everything that God says. I thought about this and how could I maybe expand on this. We we have a wonderful small group going this summer with uh, young married couples. And we're reading together and discussing and, and eating a lot of food, um, <laughs> the meaning of marriage. And we're meeting over at my house on Tuesday nights. It's just a delight. And we're reading The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And it's, I thought about pulling past it because that's a phenomenal book. But instead, I came across something recently. I was reading a, a, a book by Ray Ortland, and, and he writes this on this subject of, of just, I mean, a vital area, and how God's word is so contrarian to everything else that we hear, and we have a choice to make. Will we build our lives on God's word, or will we build our lives upon the the screaming messages of our world? I mean, let's, let's face it, anything that you watch practically, what's the purpose of romance? You, know, you, you romance the girl or the guy and whatever, and, uh, and it's for the purpose of ending up in bed. That's it. You know, maybe you get married because you want to, but maybe not. Maybe just live together because marriage is risky and who knows if you're compatible or not. And after all, compatibility is so important. And you find that all in the scriptures of the Bible, right? <laughs> no. So Ray Ortland writes this. He says, romance is not an evolution-generated mechanism for the survival of the human species. Romance came from God. Romance, yeah. <laughs> Romance, good job, Steve. Your wife amen on that. So. <laughs> Doing good there, buddy. No wonder you got six kids. 
So what happens, Christy, when you amen at certain times in the sermon? (laughs) Romance came from God. Romance reveals God. God loves us not with chilly indifference, but with hot passion. Isn't that a great line? The gospel reveals that is who God is. This wonderful truth means many things. For starters, it means marriage is not just another mutation in human social development. Marriage is a divine creation pointing to something beyond us. A man and woman falling in love, committing themselves with lifelong vows of faithfulness, that word is cut off here, something uniting sexually, living life together till death us do part. It is all pointing to the mega romance of Christ and the church in love forever. A man and and a woman in love display the ultimate story of the Son of God coming down to win to his heart with great suffering a bride from the wrong side of town. God created the universe for the purpose of telling that love story. More than any other reason, that is why our sexuality matters, whether married or single. Just being a man is a gospel privilege. Just being a woman is a gospel privilege. What we are is about the gospel. That is why we need to learn gospel sexuality. Isn't that great? But church, that is just one category of life. Uh, One category of our worldview that the gospel speaks into and shapes and frames. It's a big one, but it's not the only one. And there's lots of other big ones. And Solomon is saying the spiritual use of God's word, it is given to us so that we can have a biblical godly worldview Secondly, he says in verse 23 that it reveals the path to life in a sin-darkened world. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. In those words, I, I can't help but wonder if Solomon was thinking of what his own dad had said and written in Psalm 119. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Or in Verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. As much as this is true in uh, the, our, our spiritual world, it's also true in the, in the natural. I saw this in a way this week. I was uh, fishing with a couple of young men on Wednesday night about darkness and light and how important the light is. And uh, we finished up at dark at Sebastian Inlet, and as we're about to come home, um, I reach in for my spotlight, and I take it, the plug, and I plug it into my cigarette lighter, and uh, the spotlight kind of flickers on and off, and that's not good, because if you've ever been out to Sebastian Inlet, the channel is very, it's kind of narrow, and it winds back and forth, and they have a lot of these big posts with the channel markers, and those big posts... Um, don't play well with your boat if you hit them. It can be catastrophic, right? And so I knew this, this will not work. I, it, it was dark. There was no moon. I can't go through the channel without light. And so I pull it out, and I look, and come to find out the end had gotten 
corroded from the salt, you know, boats or all and and it was that the little prongs that are supposed to blip and, and lock it in place weren't like that's a technical word, blip, um <laughs> weren't weren't happening. And so uh I but I couldn't so I asked the one of the young men to come say, hey, would you sit here and you hold this thing in spot in place so that we have a light. We got to have a light. And so he did, and the light comes on, great. And I start going down the channel, and we're making fine, and we're curving. And then all of a sudden, the light went out because we hit a wave, and it lost contact. And so what did I do? I immediately pulled back on the throttle until I could get my light back. There was no way I was running that, running that channel in the dark. It was too dangerous. The dark was dangerous. Well, church sin has darkened our world. It's, it's darkened our thinking. But God's word, Solomon says, drives back the darkness and it lights the way for us. Specifically, he says, God's word is the light that shows the way of life. And that way of life is Jesus, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. In John chapter 5, Jesus is having one of those, you know, serious interactions with the, with the Pharisees who are antagonistic towards him. And he says to them, God gave you a shining lamp. John the Baptist was sent. And for a while, his light was helping you understand the truth and bringing you to life. And then you snuffed it out. You guys need help. And then he writes these words. You search the, or he said these words, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. We do not read the scriptures and study the scriptures and hide them in our hearts just so that we can have knowledge of the scriptures. The Pharisees knew the scriptures inside and out, but they did not have life. It was a religious exercise. Why? Because they were refusing to see how the scriptures lead them in the way of life, and that way of life is a person, Jesus. This is an important warning for all of us here. Are you here this morning as someone who maybe listens to the preaching of God's word. You may even read through God's word. You worship here. But in actuality, it's nothing more than a religious exercise because Jesus is not your life. The scriptures haven't led you there yet. You need Jesus. So there's a spiritual use in giving us the foundation of a godly worldview. Most importantly, it is because the scriptures bring us to Jesus. And then thirdly, it protects us against temptation and sin. In chapter 7, verse 4, Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. That word keep means to protect. In other words, guys, sons, the word of God will keep you, protect you, from giving in to sexual temptation and sin, which is the context in these verses, but it's not just limited to sexual temptation. Again, I can't help but think that Solomon is thinking of what his own dad maybe taught him or who certainly wrote, I have 
hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I like that word hidden, not stored. Even if stored is accurate. Because the word hidden has that idea of a, of a treasure of gold and silver that you are, you are taking and you are protecting and you're storing it away and you're guarding it because it is that important and precious to you. In Hebrews chapter 4, you see another way that the scriptures protect us and keep us. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrows, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When we store up the word of God in our hearts, we now have a, an, a standard of absolute truth given to us by God so that we can determine what is right and what is wrong. And in those situations where we are faced and we don't know what direction to go, God says X, the world says Y, your sinful nature says Z, it's X. That's the answer. 100% of the time. Okay, 100% of the time. But it also, there's an offensive use of God's word. God's word is like that sword, a two-edged sword that can be wielded at the time and deployed against the lies that we will tell ourselves, the lies that the enemy will bring to us, the lies that uh, our friends or a culture or a world will scream at us, the temptations of the flesh, the world and the devil. The, the Bible is that sword. And so in those times when you're being tempted sexually, like in the context here, those verses that you have stored away in your heart so that I might not sin against you says, hold it. Flee fornication. Hold it. Do you not know that your body is not your own, but you have been bought with a price? Therefore glorify God with your body. Hold it. Pursue the sanctification, which is flee sexual immorality, and on and on. Those verses that you store in your heart when tempted at that moment, you deploy the Holy Spirit uses as a sword to fight off the temptation. That moment when you are anxious and afraid, all those verses that start with fear not or cast all your cares upon me for I care for you. Or as Sue shared for us, I love that example. When you're going through a trial of something like infertility, you pull out that verse in moments of despair, seven years of darkness and dismay at times, and you pull that verse out and you beat back the darkness with the light of God's word as you preach it to yourself. This is how the Holy Spirit uses it. We use the scripture in our moment of need by praying it back to God, by singing it. That's why scripture that has been put to words are so important and are put to song are so great to, to have as a, as a weapon by preaching it to ourselves, by appealing to the Holy Spirit, and praying and using the word in the time of need. There had no temptation taken you, but as such is common to man. But God will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape. Oh, Holy Spirit, I don't see the escape at this moment. Open my eyes. Help me. Because this temptation is strong. The, the, the word is the sword given to us 
to help protect us against temptation and sin, but to deploy and use the word in the time of spiritual need presumes that the word is written on the tablet of our hearts, that it is stored up and hidden away so that we might not sin against thee. If the word is not hidden away and stored up and written on the tablets of our hearts, then that's a weapon in your arsenal that the Holy Spirit's not there. And so this brings us to how we do that. How is that word stored up? And let's conclude with practically seeing this by way of application, that there is a, what I would suggest, a fourfold devotion to God's word that we need to have in our lives. The most, the most basic, level one, this is hearing and reading God's word. Romans chapter uh, 10 verse 17 says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In the ancient days, they did not have written Bibles that everybody had to pull out, and whether it's paper or all of you who only rely upon electronic and don't have your Bible this morning because the internet's out. You know, that's the way it works. Um, they didn't have any of that. And so instead they would gather together and it would be read publicly and it would be taught and proclaimed and, and they would learn it in various different ways. Uh, today, we have this wonderful advantage, don't we? On your commute, you can choose any number of podcasts. You can turn to a Christian radio station. And on those podcasts, you can find godly men who are so skilled at teaching and digging into the Word of God and proclaiming it. And faith comes by hearing this and filling your heart and your life with the preached and taught and proclaimed Word of God. And, by, and in our case... A blessing that we have that they didn't have, we are able to read God's Word. We're able, with the click of a, of a button, to go from one translation to another translation to another translation to read it. We have this great luxury of everyday reading, thinking of what David said, early in the morning do I rise before thee to, to interact with God in His Word and prayer. Level one is simply hearing and reading God's Word. The level two engagement and devotion to God's word would then be meditating and discussing what you hear and read. Psalm chapter 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That idea of meditating, pondering it. Those of you who have a little country in you, you know, it's, it's chewing the cud. You know, the, the cow chews the cud, right? We're supposed to chew the cud of God's word. We're supposed to take it and just chew on it. So as we read to, to meditate and discuss, read it with a journal in mind, with a pen where you can write down and interact with the scriptures that you're reading. And then you discuss it. You discuss it and think about it. You know, you can have conversations with yourself and that's okay but there's more than that, that it's also discussing it in biblical community. I would contend that Psalm 1 implies that the man of God is delighting in the law of God and meditating on it day and night, and he's doing this not just by himself but with others because the first half of this couplet is a community couplet. 
The man is in the, walking in the counsel of the wicked. This is plural. He's standing with the way, in the way of the sinners, plural, and sitting in the seat of the scoffers. This is plural. And how should he meditate? Also plural. And discuss it, plural. Acts chapter 2 certainly makes this the case, where we are to gather together in biblical community, talking and discussing God's word so that we're better able to understand and think and see it applied into our lives. That's why living in biblical community with one another is such a foundational value of our church. And in a few weeks, we're going to be starting up, getting ready for the new ministry year, where you're having an opportunity with a small group fair where you can find a group. If you're not in a group, you need to get in a group so that you can discuss what you hear on Sunday morning and what you're reading together through the week. Level three. Level three would be studying and memorizing. So, right, you have reading and hearing. You have the idea of meditating and discussing on what you read and hear. But now we're taking it to another level. Now we're getting to, you know, the, the university and postdoctoral level. Now we're talking about studying it and memorizing it. I think of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How important it is to have this. Think about memorizing. What did Psalm 119 say? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That word was memorized. It was learned. It was planted deep so that it just flows out of the heart. I mean, mean, just those two verses right there, you noticed probably I'm saying thee and thou. You know why? Because I learned them as a child, memorized them in the King James Version. And they're planted deep. So when I say study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, if that sounds strange, yeah, because that's 1611 English. And that's what I learned it in. But how that has helped me through the years. We, we're an incredibly blessed generation when it comes to studying God's word. You guys have it so good. I had to study. I went through three years of Greek. And all you have to do is right-click your mouse, and you can have everything that I had to study for three years to get. That the tools that are at our disposal today to study God's Word, there has never been a generation alive that has the ability to know and understand and be immersed and, and just be able to go from one book to another, and, just, and then you can click and hyperlink, and, oh, what is that verse? And, and you just you're able to study God's word so efficiently. And yet there's probably never been a more biblically illiterate generation than what we are today. Church, there's no excuse. There's no excuse. We have all that we need. Then you think about memorizing. Oh, I can't memorize. Yes, you can. Everybody can memorize. And I know it gets harder as you get older, and that just means you keep reviewing it. But if you make it a part of your life, I, I, was just, I mentioned I was back at visiting my kids. Uh, I, one of the things I walked away from, and Kat and I were talking, I said, you know what I most loved about the entire week and outside of seeing my kids was that apparently they're memorizing Scripture together. And they had the same passage, I think it was from Psalms, and it was written out in different places 
And it was posted like on the bathroom mirror and on the refrigerator and above the TV and on the door so that they were seeing this facet. I think one of them had it in the car right by the speedometer, you know, so that they were seeing it. They're memorizing this together. You can memorize scripture and how important that is. Chuck Swindoll wrote this. He said, committing Bible verses to memory is the best way to displace alien unholy, and demoralizing thoughts. In all honesty, I know of no more effective way to cultivate a biblical mindset and to accelerate spiritual growth than this discipline. He came to Christ as a young man in the Navy and was immediately involved in the navigators who had a, and who still provide a, the navigator's memory system. And he said, that one thing he believes more than anything else. He had seminary education and everything. He said that one thing set the course for his Christian life, and he falls back on it constantly, constantly. And we have those at our disposal. And if you're interested in doing that, let me encourage you. It's just practical. Again, this is very practical, pastoral, just pastoral counsel. Just get you a few verses and memorize them and just work on them and work on them and work on them. Get them perfect, as perfect as you possibly can, and then review them regularly. If you are predisposed to anxiety, maybe start there. Get a couple of verses that have to do with anxiety, and you just memorize them, and you preach them to yourself, and you bring them out, 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 and then you expand from there and grow. Or get yourself something like the Navigator's Memory System or an app that will prompt you and bring it up before you You'll be surprised. I mean, just think about it. If you took, you know, one verse or one passage a quarter, where would you be a year from now, five years from now? How much of God's word would be hidden in your heart that you might not sin against him? The one final level, you know, it's important to read and hear. It's important to meditate and discuss and to study and memorize. But all of that is useless without the fourth category to use it and obey it. The author of Hebrews, as he's talking to these carnal Christians who have been given the word of God, he tells them it's by reason of use that you learn to discern good from evil. We said at the very beginning that we will never walk in God's wisdom unless we know God's word. But when we speak of knowing God's word, we are not simply speaking of intellectual attainment, of head knowledge, of, of rational understanding and biblical literacy. Again, the Pharisees had all of those things. They are very important. You need those things. But when we talk about knowing God's word, it is knowing it intellectually and rationally but up here, but it is loving it intimately right there. Do you see that? It's interesting how the word know in the Bible is so often associated with not just the intellectual, but with the love aspect of the heart. And so it's building our lives upon what God's word says because it leads us to Jesus and it empowers us to live like Jesus so that we can work for Jesus and for his kingdom. And then we hear that warning from James chapter 1. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do 
what it says. Otherwise, you're a fool. May God help us not to be fools this week. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for that. The ultimate beautiful manifestation of your word is Jesus. In former days, you spoke to us through the prophets, but now in these last days, you have revealed your glory through your son, Jesus, who in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word took on flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, even the glory of the only begotten Son of God. Father, may you make us people of your word, not just in as an intellectual exercise, but people who love it, whose lives are built upon it, whose destinies are shaped by it, who find it to be a very real friend in our time of need as we submit to the Holy Spirit who uses it for our good and for your glory. And for the one here who doesn't know the word, the way of life in Jesus, may you convict them of their need to surrender to him even this morning. In your name we ask these things, Father. Amen.